Absorb the Arrow, Prologue, The Golem. In the realm of mythical monsters, we encounter a fascinating creature known as the Golem. These monsters are summoned or created by a magician or sorceress for protection and are formed of loose matter in the environment such as sticks, mud, stones, snow, etc. The word golem literally means to be amorphous or uninformed. The golem monsters found in folklore have no sentience, personality, or character, even though they are typically humanoid in appearance. These monsters can also grow in strength as they absorb items used to attack the wizard. A golem has only one objective, to keep intruders from disturbing the boss. As an example, I'll call your attention to the Disney movie Frozen. Elsa is a sorceress who creates a golem out of ice and snow. The golem's job is to evict the other characters from Elsa's castle. The monster has no personality and only says two things through the entire movie. One, get out. And two, ah. William Henley suggested you are the master of your fate and the captain of your soul. I might add that you are also the wizard of your own emotional state. Throughout this book, I want you to maintain in the forefront of your mind the concept of the sorcerer and the golem. Circumstantial threats to our mental and emotional health may be more prevalent than ever before in human history. The principles and tactics in this book will help you build a mental golem to guard against the emotional arrows that are flung in your direction. Let your mind envision a golem, absorbing those arrows and growing more powerful with each passing day. Further. Remember this simple yet powerful self-coaching approach as you study these principles and in your daily pursuits. In a real sense, you are where you are because of two things. One, your circumstances, and two, your actions. The magic of being a human being is what happens before we make a decision to act. Consider the following pattern as taught by the Life Coach School. Circumstances lead to thoughts, lead to feelings, lead to actions, lead to results. Circumstances are listed first because they are neutral and exist no matter what. Our thoughts concerning our circumstances generate the emotions we feel, and those emotions help fuel our actions, which bring us our results. Knowing this can help anyone make better actions as we move forward. Take charge of your thoughts and your emotions will follow suit. This can allow you to engage in positive actions that will turn your life into the extraordinarily magical adventure that you deserve to live. Like a wizard. Human emotions are very often completely unreliable and at other times potentially destructive. Yet, emotions are integral to a rich human experience and can help us achieve great things in our lives. Learning to manage emotions is essential to good decision-making and can keep us from following those negative emotions into snake pits of despair and misery. Let us first define what an emotion is. The Oxford Dictionary suggests that an emotion is a strong feeling that is derived from one's circumstances, mood, or relationships. In other words, an emotion is the result of human thought coupled with bodily sensation. 
Dr. Darlene Menini, PhD, has developed a simple way to manage emotions, and in this chapter, those tactics bear repeating. 1. Identify the emotion. With the myriad of emotional descriptions available to us, consider that there are really only four main emotions. Anxiety, anger, sadness, and happiness. 2. Identify the message of the emotion. To do this, simply ask the associated question proposed by Dr. Menini. When you feel anxiety, ask, of what am I afraid? When you feel anger, ask, how have my values been attacked? When you feel sadness, ask, what have I lost? And when you feel happiness, ask, what have I gained? Three, identify a course of action. Physical movement and physical coping mechanisms are best in addressing emotions and changing the physical world around you. If we were happy all day, every day for the rest of our lives, that would be great. But the nature of this world is to give to us and take from us. Our values, especially if they are good values, will definitely be attacked. And from time to time, we will be filled with fear for the unknown. Consider this wonderful quote from Lao Tzu. If you are depressed, you are living in the past. If you are anxious, you are living in the future. If you are at peace, you are living in the present. Anxiety is particularly debilitating to many people. Consider this. There is never a good time to panic. As the stakes rise, clear thinking and emotional restraint become more critical. Consider attempting to evade a predator. Different predators require different escape tactics, and keeping a clear head in order to maintain a good decision-making paradigm may save your life. To evade one predator, you may need to hold very still, and another predator may require running away in a zigzag fashion. If you panic, you may choose the wrong tactic, and your family will get to plan a funeral. One of the blessings we've discovered about anxiety is that it can be transitioned into excitement with relative ease. There is very little physiological difference between fear and excitement, increased blood pressure, tensing of the muscles, etc. Remember the equation of an emotion is thoughts plus bodily sensations. If the sensations for anxiety and excitement are nearly identical, we can change our thoughts ever so slightly in order to be excited instead of scared. Please use this principle the next time you are nervous. Say you are giving a speech and you feel anxious. Take a few deep breaths and try to transition your thoughts into excitement. Your emotions will follow suit. Also consider the principle that is taught to every sales and marketing professional. Human beings make decisions emotionally and then justify rationally. People who want to manipulate you will always appeal to your emotions. This may be good if you need a security system or a new dishwasher, or it may be devastating if the politician has nefarious intentions or if you don't really need to borrow for a college degree 
or if the guy who has asked you out says the sweetest things that make you tingle inside. We humans are emotional creatures, but our thoughts should be our own. Many, if not most, bad decisions can be avoided by understanding that emotions are wonderful and powerful, but they also have no IQ. Brigham Young, a famous politician, religious leader, and settler of the Western United States famously said, he who takes offense when no offense is intended is a fool. There are places in this world where a man will become offended if you neglect to ask him about the general condition of his wife and family. Also in this world, you can find places where men will become offended if you make the mistake of asking him about the general condition of his wife and family. The differences in culture and the ways of going about our day-to-day -day business are different based on where we grew up. We have been indoctrinated to believe that multiculturalism is a good thing. This can be a true statement, only with cultures who have been programmed to be tolerant of potentially offensive cultural differences. If someone paints a picture of the wrong historical character, or cleans themselves in the restroom with the wrong hand, or, heaven forbid, takes the wrong tactic when discussing a man's family, then the big boy cultures learn to take those unintentional offenses in stride and find a way to muddle through life without allowing the behavior of a different culture to adversely affect them. Diversity can only work if those who are participating can handle things being done differently. One group may have a culture that produces fancy rugs, another makes a delicious avocado dip, and another might make a great sleeveless barbecue joint. Those differences are fine, as long as nobody gets beheaded for praying to the wrong statue. In many ways, culture is anti-rational, anti-scientific, and amoral. Any culture that can't produce people that are able to be perpetually offended and still refrain from violence isn't ready for the melting pot. Just remember, you can't spell culture without the word cult. As a fix, I strongly hold to a principle called the NAP, an acronym for the Non-Aggression Principle. If people of varying cultures can all latch on to the concept of refraining from initiating aggression towards others, the melting pot of diversity can work. If we humans are going to maintain this beautiful synthesis we call civilization, we must put off the irrationality of culture and learn to take no offense, especially when none is intended. Aside from cultural differences, there are interpersonal relationship circumstances where learning to not take offense can be very valuable. Allow me an anecdote to illustrate how to learn to shed off potentially hurtful experiences. I was once at my place of work, and one of the older customers, whom I've literally known my whole life, and was approaching 100 years old at the time, pointed at me and said, Brett, you're fat. Was it true? Sure. Did she mean to hurt my feelings? No. Did I let it ruin my day or generate hurty feelings? Absolutely not. I simply said, MJ, you're right. Bread tastes good, and running hurts. What can I do? There are a couple of points to bring out of this story. No doubt, 
I was heavy at the time and could have afforded to drop a few pounds. The truth is the truth. However, letting myself feel hurt or sad over MJ's comment is rather silly. And I hope anyone reading this can see the silliness. There was no malice in her voice and she in no way wanted to be hurtful toward me. I can't for the life of me figure out why people have their antenna tuned into every potentially offensive word or phrase. How exhausting it must be to look for ways to be offended. Even if the criticism is true or one of the words was hurtful, if there was no mean spirit behind the comment or action, the best thing to do is let your golem absorb the slights and go on with your day. The recommendation is to assume the best of intentions when dealing with others. Consider how frustrating it would be if you were putting in a good faith effort to communicate with someone and they accused you of using a dog whistle tactic or of acting out of bad faith or of concealing your true nefarious intentions. Jewish tradition specifically teaches their children to assume the best of intentions with all people. This is a very effective philosophy in maintaining a healthy emotional state on an interpersonal and cultural level, and everyone would do well to implement that philosophy. The question is begged, well, what if the person with whom I am conversing is ill-motivated or has evil intentions? My answer would be to consider the remainder of Brigham Young's statement as we head into the next chapter. He who takes offense when offense is intended is a greater fool. Absorb the Arrow, Chapter 3 Fröhliche Weihnachten Consider this German phrase, which may be one of the most intentionally offensive things anyone has ever said. Fröhliche Weihnachten Perhaps you may become hysterically offended at the fact that I included this phrase in the book. What if children end up reading that phrase? Could it not cause intense psychological and emotional damage? Those children may attach their self-worth to this horrific statement, which could stunt their learning capacity and cause their egos to dwindle like fruit on a winter vine. Even adults have been known to cry themselves to sleep for up to 12 weeks at the mere thought of hearing the phrase Fröhliche Weihnachten. Should this phrase be banned? Should we shame people for using it? Should people be jailed for uttering the phrase in the presence of a child? The answer is, um, no. The reasoning is simple, but very powerful. The aforementioned phrase has no power to hurt anyone because no words or phrases have any such power. In addition, the ability to speak freely is the essence of freedom. No word or phrase should ever be banned. Ever. Not even one of the sweetest phrases you can say in German or any other language. Fröhliche Weihnachten. Which, of course, means Merry Christmas. In 1998, Disney produced a wonderful animated film about cross-dressing titled Mulan. Toward the end of the film, the Emperor of China, played by Pat Morita, issues a very powerful line, quote, No matter how the wind howls, 
the mountain cannot bow to it. End quote. The imagery of that phrase is obviously stunning, considering the scene, a 90-pound elderly emperor being intimidated by a 250-pound physical and political threat, calmly refuses to kneel before his captor. What a great metaphor for the human emotional state. Much like the wind in the analogy, people's words need not affect you at all. The following phrase is at least 150 years old, but it is true as ever. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Cue the protest. Brett, isn't verbal abuse more destructive than physical abuse? Maybe. But ask yourself this, would you rather get roasted by a comedian or barbecued by a chef? Get back to me on that. The truth is, when we hear hurtful speech, the person who spoke those words did not cause the pain. Your brain caused the pain. The interpretation of the mind is what triggers the emotional response. This truth is simply illustrated by the fact that if the hurtful words were spoken in a different language, you wouldn't even understand them. So those words would not hurt you. Even if the verbal assailant was trying to insult your friends, employment circumstances, favorite football team, or your mama. If you didn't understand what was being said, no negative emotional response would ever take place. I will concede this point. Slanders, slurs, negative descriptions, or any kind of verbal abuse can have a corrosive and damaging effect, if you allow it. That is the important distinction. Words are not instruments of violence unless they specifically call for people to be violent, or if those words are a direct threat. There is a tendency to allow words to hurt us, especially if those words are originating from some form of adversary. You can take in any volume of negative stimuli and allow your brain to build it into your experience to disastrously negative effect. Or you can simply allow your golem to absorb those arrows so you can focus on other things. This is so important to understand because many times in our lives we encounter people who intentionally try to hurt us emotionally. Once we realize that we have the power to choose to not be hurt, the whole world can change for the better. Chronic stress brought on by the abusive words and actions of others can cause harm over time if you allow it to do so. You can develop the skills necessary to not allow hurtful words to cause you any pain or stress. The best response to intentional verbal attack may come from the great Miles Davis. So what? Other responses that are an effective cue for your golem could be, I know, right? Or, thank you. Or perhaps the most powerful. Okay. Merry Christmas. Absorb the Arrow, Chapter 4, Kryptonite for Bullies. In the DC comic universe, the greatest superhero of them all is a young man named Clark Kent, also known as Superman. When you organize a skills and talents list for Superman, he is one of the most godlike beings in folklore. Speed, strength, jumping ability, eyesight, vision, hearing, mentality, and he can even wipe a woman's memory by kissing her. Superman seems 
invincible, yet he is not. In the known DC universe, there is only one way he can be defeated. Get him in the vicinity of kryptonite. When a Kryptonian, such as Superman, is exposed to kryptonite, those superpowers evaporate and are replaced with muscle weakness, pain, fever, and route to certain death unless the kryptonite is moved away from the victim. One might say that kryptonite turns Superman into Clark Kent. I didn't write that. Heard it at an open mic comedy show years ago from a comedian who needed to use the shower at a higher frequency. Good joke, though. I hate to compare bullies to Superman, but to the victim of bullying, they seem to have all the power and endurance of a son or daughter of Krypton. As Kryptonite contains the power to subdue Superman, the victims of bullying can have the skill of subduing those bullies to the point of being completely ineffective. One of the philosophies of Judo, according to Jigoro Kano, is softness controls hardness. This phrase essentially means that a smaller fighter can control and eventually subdue a larger fighter through being elusive and using the strength and force of the larger fighter against him. This philosophy is a great paradigm from which to consider the concept of bullying. First, as with most things in life, it is important to define what bullying is. Bullying is a form of dominance behavior loosely defined as repeated aggressive acts in which there is an imbalance of power between the perpetrator and the victim. The characterization of bullying typically has three elements as taught by Dan Olwes. One, there is an imbalance of power from perpetrator to victim. Two, the bully enjoys exerting the power over the victim. And three, the relationship repeats itself over time. In some circles, bullying can include assault and battery, but that is where I suggest the reader make a distinction. Battery is unwanted touch or contact by another. Assault is defined as credible threats of battery. These are crimes and should be treated as such. In those circumstances, actual judo may be more helpful than anything I'm able to teach you here. I want to explore nonviolent bullying and tactics to help children, teens, and adults cope with those who would dominate them. If the victims are assaulted or battered, the police should be involved. Incredible amounts of resources have been invested to convince children not to bully one another. The rub is, students at schools with anti-bullying initiatives may be more likely to become the victim of bullying. The same article suggests that anti-bullying posters and videos presented at school may give bullies ideas as to how to bully more effectively, presumably leaving more time for leisure and recreation. The research cited in that article also seems to suggest that the culture of the school is to blame. One is left to ask, if we use the Prussian model of schooling, which currently puts the entire system under the auspices of compulsion and threats, how can the culture at those schools be changed so that the children do not feel the need to coerce and threaten one another? As it stands, a considerable percentage of the population acquires their resources through this Prussian schooling model and the accompanying threats. So a change is less than unlikely. Further, bullying is available to us on demand wherever we go. Cyberbullying is a subtle and pernicious threat that may have an influence on the increasing suicide rates. What are we left to do? There is a problem, and the supposedly reasonable fixes may be making it worse. I suggest 
we remember two lessons we learned in school, one from biology class and one from drama class. In biology, we learn about a social structure called the dominance hierarchy. These hierarchies arise when members of a social group interact to create a ranking system. In social living groups, members are likely to compete for access to limited resources and mating opportunities. Rather than fighting each time they meet, relative rank is established between members of the same sex. Based on repetitive interactions, a social order is created that is subject to change each time a dominant animal is challenged by a subordinate one. As with many animals, when humans are maturing, there is an underlying competition to climb this hierarchy. The bully has the power and repeats this behavior to maintain their position in the hierarchy. Chickens, for example, will gang up on and sometimes kill weaker chickens. This behavior has birthed the term that is a euphemism for dominance hierarchy. Pecking order. If we see through the prism of a pecking order or dominance behavior, the lesson will reveal itself. The trick is to not waste too much time on the bully. Rather, spend a healthy amount of time and resources teaching kids to be strong and resilient and to climb the hierarchy through love rather than hate. There is a magical skill that we teach students in drama class called improvised theater. I will not bore the reader with all of the rules of improvised theater, but I will focus on the first rule. Yes, and. This means that the goal of all the performers on stage is to accept all information presented by your scene partners. Then add something to the scene from the perspective of your character to drive the scene forward. This skill works like magic when navigating the human condition, especially when someone is attempting to use you as a rung on the dominance hierarchy. This tactic is basically taking anything that happens to you and growing your golem's power to protect you. When mastered, you will have a simple skill that will essentially make you impervious to verbal assaults from others. To illustrate, let us explore a bullying scenario. The bully says, Hey, loser! Do you work hard to smell that bad, or does it come to you naturally? To which the victim replies, I don't stink. You're a jerk. I'm telling the principal. Tears. The bully continues, Oh, does that hurt your feelings? You know, I bet a half pound of ice cream would make you feel better, and it would also help you maintain that triple XL waistline. Two for one. Then the victim would respond, I'm just big boned. Stop it. Leave me alone. More tears. And the bully says, okay, Jack. The victim, my name is Joseph. You got it wrong on purpose. The bully says, did I, Josephine? I'll have to work on that. The victim then cries and runs off to sob in the lavatory. The bully wins this game in straight sets. Being defensive is a natural and childish response to negative attention. Accepting the available information and adding to the scene of life displays confidence and resilience. I hope this simple and powerful skill, along with chapter 3, can help control the tendency to give others power over us with their words. Bruce Lee said it this way, You will continue to suffer if you have an emotional reaction to everything that is said to you. True power is sitting back and observing everything with logic. If words control you, that means everyone else can control you. Breathe and allow things to pass." Quote. Instead of having an emotional fall apart, 
What if Joseph allowed his golem to absorb those verbal arrows? What if those clever and mean things didn't have any power over him? What if he followed the first rule of improv and agreed to those verbal slights? The interaction could read like this. Bully says, hey loser, do you work hard to smell that bad or does it come to you naturally? Victim, naturally, but thanks for noticing then goes about his business. The bully persists. Does that hurt your feelings? I bet a half pound of ice cream would make you feel better, and it would also help you maintain that triple XL waistline. Two for one. And the victim could say, maybe, it's hard to tell with all that bacon that I eat. Maybe I will try ice cream with my bacon and see how that works. Thanks for the tip. Then goes about his business. The bully goes, okay, Jack. The victim says, Jack, I like that. Maybe I'll switch from Joseph to Jack. It has a nice ring to it. Thanks for the recommendation. Goes about his business. The bully will eventually realize that he or she has no capacity to hurt the targeted victim and loses the game. His powers have been weakened and he has been reduced by the first rule of improv. Is this skill easy to implement? No but neither is judo. You have to practice to develop any skill worth having. If you do practice this skill, when you are faced with a bully, you will discover that you have become resilient, confident, and much more charming and fun to be around than any bully ever dreamed. Then the bully will have a considerable amount of sympathy for Superman when he has his strength completely stripped by kryptonite. The first rule of improv is a great way to go about your daily business. Being playful and agreeable with our friends, neighbors, and enemies is a great skill to develop. A side effect of being playful in this manner is that you might even accidentally climb the dominance hierarchy through love and brotherhood rather than belittling your fellows. Lastly, by accepting what the bully says, I am in no way giving you permission to believe what they say. Remember, we are treating these interactions like a game. Nobody should be able to change how you feel about yourself and the actions that you decide to take by saying something rude or hurtful. The very point of this exercise is to take control of your own thoughts, which will influence your feelings on your own terms. This is one of the chief ways we can give that proverbial golem his power. Absorb the Arrow, Chapter 5, The Siren's Song. That sweet fabled song that ends in death. In Homer's Odyssey, we find Odysseus and his crew needing to sail past the sirens. The sirens were known to lure sailors to their deaths with their intoxicating music. Odysseus wisely heeded the counsel of Circe, who instructed Odysseus to insert beeswax into the ears of his shipmates so the sirens could not destroy his crew. However, curiosity welled in his soul, and he determined to hear for himself the beauty and seduction of the sirens' song. Odysseus ordered his crew to tie him to the mast, and under no circumstances were the men to untie him whilst the ship was in earshot of the sirens. As they passed, Odysseus struggled to loose himself and begged for release, but his crew did as instructed, and they all survived the sirens. 
At the end of this mortal kerfuffle, there is a box of dust that awaits. While you are here, you may do wonderful things, acquire many resources, bless the lives of yourself, friends, and family, and pass on important knowledge to the next generation. Or you can sit on your couch and consider yourself a victim of some oppressive force out there beyond the mist. This siren song has destroyed many in Earth's history and will yet destroy the lives of a great number of human beings. Indeed, it is the sweet song that ends in death. Consider the beeswax inserted into the ears of Odysseus's crew. This is the most effective defense against the sirens. Not only are the men unable to hear the sirens, but while the ship was in dangerous waters, the crew members were able to continue executing their duties and pursuing their goals. Obviously, the temptation to label one's self as a victim is incredible. The best defense is to position your ears in such a way that you never hear the music. Then you can go about your business and work toward your goals without so much as a distraction from those who may destroy you. If the things we allow into our minds are only supporting and uplifting, those things will carry us toward our stated goals. If you decide to listen to the sirens, I hope you have some way to tie yourself to the mast. Strong philosophies, religion, or solid relationships will be needed to shirk off the temptation to believe that someone else cares enough to arbitrarily hold you back. Consider the kinds of people who are most in need of earwax plugs. These are the people who really are victims of the behaviors and decisions of others. Sometimes we don't know if someone is holding us back, and sometimes the evidence seems clear. Either way, the best course of action is to leave the wax in your ears and tie yourself to the mast if necessary. If you are at a disadvantage in any way, you need to focus even harder. Giving up because you are a victim will destroy any plans you have in making your life better. Don't give anyone or anything power over your thoughts and emotions in such a way that you believe that you are oppressed. Why would you give that power to someone who may not like you or who may not think about you at all? A young man once joined a sales force to try to make some extra money. He struggled to make any sales. One of his obvious problems, common with beginners, was he sounded nervous when he met a new person. In addition to sounding nervous, his forehead would flex and his eyes would open wide, making him look like a scared lemur. His managers tried to help him relax his face and smile when he gave his door approach, to no avail. This young man quit the sales job, blaming racism. He was of African descent, and the sales force was working in a predominantly Asian and Hispanic city. He was convinced that racism against him made it impossible to make money in this way. Are there racist people in the world? Yes. Was it the reason this young gentleman was unable to make enough sales to support himself? I don't know. But neither does he. Typically, if people have ants in their house and you knock on their door with the ant spray, you're going to get paid that day, regardless of the melanin content of your outer shell. The siren song of victimhood destroyed the goal of my friend's voyage and potentially tainted the rest of his life by convincing him that racial, racist, racists are around every corner 
working hard at holding him back in his life's journey. Maybe there were some snooty, high-minded people who would never buy a service from a guy with curly hair. Or maybe his forehead flex and scared eyes were too distracting for homeowners to take him seriously. Either way, I know he could have done better if he would have focused on the things over which he had control instead of listening to the siren song of victimhood. Consider the words of Calvin Coolidge, the 30th president of the United States. Quote, nothing in this world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone are omnipotent. The slogan, press on, has solved and always will solve the problems of the human race. End quote. I know of an individual that struggles almost exclusively because of the decisions and behavior of her mother. She has a condition called fetal alcohol syndrome, and the physical characteristics she has to deal with make her life one of the hardest things you can imagine. If brutal socialist dictators like Stalin, Hitler, or Mao Zedong are going to be seated on the right hand of Satan in hell, then the mothers who decided they couldn't give up alcohol or drugs during pregnancy are going to sit at the devil's left hand. My friend lives in perpetual struggle to find meaning and connect with people. Some are friendly, but many recoil at her appearance and shun her without interacting if they can help it. She is a true victim of circumstance. Yet she is kind, warm, and motivated to make the most out of her life. She knows the best way to avoid the victimhood mentality is to take as much responsibility for her life outcomes as possible. This is more difficult for my friend than almost anyone else. Yet her example is one we can all emulate. Bring life to those around you and avoid being an energy vampire. Be strong and give strength to others. Be kind, work hard, and keep the beeswax firmly in your ears, lest you be tempted with the siren's song of victimhood. Absorb the Arrow, Chapter 6. Consider the source, but not above the logic. Government schools in the United States currently do not generally teach logic or how to recognize failures in logic. This may be the biggest shortfall in the modern world's attempt to educate our young. Logic is defined as the science of dealing with the formal principles of validity or the formal principles of reasoning. I concede that the mathematics curricula have some positive objectives in building logical thinking, but logic itself has been considered a college-level course of study. In my opinion, Logic and critical thinking can and ought to be added to the curricula at a young age. The irony is, if children were taught logic and reason early on, they would naturally be better at test-taking and solving abstract mathematical equations. I see many adults fall for clear breakdowns in logic and believe things they should scrutinize. For instance, the phrases, the experts say, dot, 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 or the popular opinion is, dot, dot, dot. Or, 
the people who disagree with me are evil, therefore, dot, 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 should all get the same response. Your reasoning is flawed, so I don't know if you are correct or not. Bad logical approaches make it impossible to know the truth or validity of conclusions. In other words, you may be right, but if your logic is bad, nobody will be able to know for sure. One basic in logic that is easy for even children to grasp is called the syllogism, although they may struggle with the spelling. The syllogism is a basic argument that uses deduction to conclude if something is true. There are three parts to the syllogism. One, the general statement or premise. Two, the specific statement or second premise. And three, the conclusion. Let us consider an example of a syllogism to illustrate the next point. General statement. All bankers are crooks and cannot be trusted. Specific statement. Carl is a banker. Conclusion. Carl is a crook and cannot be trusted. Ask yourself, is Carl really a crook? The answer is we don't know. The internal logic of the syllogism is true, but the facts of the premise or general statement are provably false, so it is a false conclusion. Therefore, we don't know if Carl is a crook or not. However, if the facts of the premise are true, then the syllogism can give great direction in concluding if things are real, true, and good. Consider this example. General statement. All mammals will die without food and water. Specific statement. My dog is a mammal. Conclusion. If my dog goes without food and water, it will die. Honest or dishonest. Being able to recognize a dishonest argument may be one of the most liberating things one can discover when seeking wisdom and understanding. Take, for instance, the concept of recognizing dishonest debate tactics or logical fallacies. There may be some time investment needed by individuals in order to recognize all of these dishonest tactics. One comforting thing to know is that there are only two honest debate tactics. Yes, only two. These tactics are best described by John T. Reed. Quote, One, pointing out errors or omissions in your opponent's facts, or two, pointing out errors or omissions in your opponent's logic. End quote. With all of the dishonesty available in our modern media-driven culture, I don't think I'm overstating when I say that the ability to recognize dishonest arguments may be one of the most important skills a human can acquire. With practice, you can learn to cut right down to the bedrock of any argument and maintain a rational mind when others are being hysterical. I'll now touch on some common fallacies, also known as dishonest debate tactics or non-arguments. Ad hominem. If I am told, that guy is just an X, so he couldn't possibly be right. This is called an ad hominem argument, meaning to the man. Personal attacks ignore the basic facts, so we are unable to ascertain the truth based on the illogical proposition. After all, if you can get your opponent labeled a crook, a liar, or a racist, why would anyone pursue the facts which may prove you wrong? Appeal to authority. The flip side of the ad hominem is known as an appeal to authority. That guy is a well-educated ex with lots of experience. 
So he must be right, no matter what. This tactic is just as manipulative and just as weak logically as the ad hominem, but is very persuasive. If you had to bet, you would probably bet with the experts on any given topic, even if their opinion was predicated on a non-argument like the appeal to authority. In reality, if a man or a woman is an authority on a topic, they should be able to explain all the evidence in a simple and clear manner, and would never say they are right because of a fancy piece of paper they hung on their office wall. Straw man. Another very commonly used dishonest tactic is a straw man argument. The straw man fallacy means to present your opponent's arguments in such a light that it is easy for you to defeat the argument. To be a clear thinker, a good practice is to do the opposite of the straw man. Steel man your opponent. This means to present your opponent's argument in its strongest light, so you are refuting the strongest points with your strongest points. This practice is good to bring all participants closer to the truth, if such a thing exists. Just remember, you're in straw man fallacy territory whenever you hear yourself say, that person thinks or believes, dot, dot, dot. Appeal to popularity. This one is a favorite manipulation tactic in the political sphere. After all, everyone is allowed to vote, and the majority of these voters want a thing, so that thing is the right thing to do, right? Not at all. If the majority opinion is that slavery should be allowed, that doesn't mean that slavery should be allowed. The best line I can think of on this topic comes from the great 1997 film Men in Black. Quote, a person is smart. People are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals. And you know it. Anecdotal evidence. This fallacy is very enticing. After all, how could someone deny your personal experiences? You lived through a thing, and it was foundational to your opinion. The problem is that your experience may be an outlier. Regardless of what happened to you personally, you may still be wrong. To conclude, let me simply suggest that being a famous person does not make you correct. Having years of experience doesn't make you correct. Being popular doesn't make you correct. Being a scientist with impressive credentials doesn't make you correct. Being correct makes you correct. And the only way to know for sure is to verify your facts and scrutinize your logic. Absorb the Arrow, Chapter 7, The First Noble Truth. If you have not received one already, know that a phone call is coming. The call that brings horrible news that will change your life forever. You may handle it like a champion or break down and cry for hours. The world around you may not make sense for a while and you may blame yourself for failing in some way. I was able to learn through my own experience that the emotion of sadness has an important function for human beings. In my opinion, when we mourn properly, we can move forward with more strength and focus to make the most out of the rest of our life. 
I will never forget the morning when my mother called me to tell me my little brother decided to end his life. He was my sidekick for much of my earthly journey. And now I get to walk the rest of the way without being able to talk to him. In the past, I had heard that circumstances are neutral and our thoughts can control our emotional state. So I tested the life coaching theories in my own time of despair and sorrow. I realized that there is a point where the pain we feel for sorrow and loss is self-inflicted. I am here to tell you that this is absolutely true. When my mother first called me, I was devastated for a few minutes and then numb for hours. The next morning while preparing a talk for his funeral, I fell apart again. Then, of course, at the service I shed many tears and experienced very strong emotions. As I write these words, I realize that the pain is still there, but the pain has changed shape. I'm able to engage in my life and strive for my plans and goals without feeling sad, unless I choose to do so. When I think about him, I recall the good and bad things about his existence and how he made my life better. Here's the thing. I know that I could work myself into a depressed stupor at any point if I wanted to. All I would have to do is focus on all the things he wanted and didn't get. The songs and poems he could have written. All of the goals he had that failed and the joys he deserved but never felt. I know that I cannot do that. It wouldn't be fair to his memory or my own emotional state. Hopefully, through me sharing this sad time in my life, you can see the power that thoughts have in directing emotions. That was a sad and dark time for my heart and soul, but it made me better and helped me realize the value of living in the moment and relishing in those things that I find most precious. Further, I find value in knowing the first noble truth of Buddhism. Life is suffering. This is as true as anything in the known universe. Life is suffering. The fact is, life is also filled with beauty, joy, and amazement. The sad days are coming, or are already here. Striving to become stronger in order to endure the suffering is the only healthy option. There is power in knowing that life is hard, and human existence is suffering. We will all die at some point, and any day could be our last. When I am in that mindset, I find it much easier to enjoy the sunset, find humor in something mundane, or hold my loved ones a little closer. Once, my family was enjoying a sunset on the beach in Southern California. If you've never done that before, I can't recommend it more highly. My wife was writing things in the sand and taking pictures of the sayings with the foam of the ocean crawling toward her work. I could not resist the urge to bend down and write the phrase, This will never change. My wife wasn't very amused, but that mental image comes to my mind frequently. No matter what she or I wrote in the sand, the tide quickly wiped it away, as though it was never there. With great fondness, I will always look back to the times when I sang to my children to put them to sleep, or played baseball in the yard, or constructed Lego towers on the dining room table. I will recall playing drums while my little brother played guitar. I will remember punching his face when he wouldn't give me the remote to the television. 
I will relish in all those memories because I know that eventually all those experiences and stories will be washed away. If we remember the first noble truth of Buddhism, it makes it a little easier to understand the fact that regardless of what we write in the sands of life, the tide will eventually come in and erase it. So we might as well hold our loved ones close for as long as possible. Enjoy the sound of the waves smashing against the rocks and the sensation of the sand filtering between our toes as we watch the sunlight dwindle beyond the horizon. Absorb the Arrow, Chapter 8, Hidden Wedges. As with many great stories that teach powerful principles, I once heard a guy quote another guy who was quoting another guy. The original story in this run is told by a man named Samuel T. Whitman, who wrote this. The ice storm that winter was generally destructive. True, a few wires came down and there was a sudden jump in accidents along the highway. Normally, the big walnut tree would easily have borne the weight that formed on its spreading limbs. It was the iron wedge in its heart that caused the damage. The story of the iron wedge began years ago, when the white-haired farmer, who now inhabited the property on which it stood, was a lad on his father's homestead. The sawmill had then only recently been moved from the valley and the settlers were still finding tools and odd pieces of equipment scattered about. On this particular day, it was a faller's wedge, wide, flat, and heavy, a foot or more long, and splayed from mighty poundings, which the lad found in the south pasture. A faller's wedge used to help fell a tree is inserted in a cut made by a saw and then struck with a sledgehammer to widen the cut. Because he was already late for dinner, the lad laid the wedge between the limbs of the young walnut tree his father had planted near the front gate. He would take the wedge to the shed right after dinner, or sometime when he was going that way. He truly meant to, but he never did. The wedge was there between the limbs, a little tight when he attained his manhood. It was there, now firmly gripped, when he married and took over his father's farm. It was half grown over on the day the threshing crew ate dinner under the tree. Grown in and healed over, the wedge was still in the tree. The winter, the ice storm came. In the chill silence of that wintry night, one of the three major limbs split away from the trunk and crashed to the ground. This so unbalanced the remainder of the top that it too split apart and went down. When the storm was over, not a twig of the once proud tree remained. Early the next morning, the farmer went out to mourn his loss. Then his eyes caught sight of something in the splintered ruin. The wedge, he muttered reproachfully. The wedge I found in the south pasture. A glance told him why the tree had fallen. Growing edge up in the trunk, the wedge had prevented the limb fibers from knitting together as they should. Hidden wedges in our souls can take different forms. Consider the circumstance where person A feels hurt by the actions of person B. But person B has no memory of those actions. Or person B thought the actions were just fine. In this simple scenario, 
Person A is simply hurting themselves over the behavior or lack of behavior from someone else, and a good old-fashioned forgiveness is in order to let go of the past and move forward. According to Ruben Cottom, Ph.D., there are a variety of definitions of forgiveness. Research has suggested they all have three common components. One, gaining a more balanced view of the offender and the event. Two, decreasing negative feelings toward the offender and potentially increasing compassion. Three, giving up the right to punish the offender further or to demand restitution. He goes on to say, The truth is that forgiveness is more powerful than you might think. Just like with anything in life, there are costs to your choices. Staying angry, resentful, and vengeful comes at a price. All these feelings can have a detrimental impact on your physical and emotional health, as well as your relationships. Psychologically, when people reported higher levels of forgiveness, they also tended to report better health habits and decreased depression, anxiety, and anger levels. Even in betrayed couples, greater levels of forgiveness were associated with more satisfied relationships, a stronger parenting alliance, and children's perceptions of parenting functioning. Higher reported levels of forgiveness were associated with lower white blood cell count and hematocrit levels. White blood cells are an integral part of fighting off diseases and infections. Together, these results highlight the importance of forgiveness, not just for the other person, but for you. Don't allow your mind and your body to go through another day feeling vengeful and angry. End quote. This is not just a spiritual or a psychological principle. Be a healthier and happier person by letting go of those vengeful and hurtful wedges that you hold inside. The tree in San Whitman's story is so metaphorical to our heart and ego. As nice as it would feel to one day embarrass the person who hurt you in the past, know that it will turn to dust in your hand, and the relationship will not heal any easier. If it helps, just remember what Kent M. Keith said, quote, People are illogical, unreasonable, and self-centered. Love them anyway. End quote. And if that doesn't work, go with Oscar Wilde's philosophy, always forgive your enemies. Nothing annoys them so much. Absorb the Arrow, Chapter 9, Dance in the Rain. Our world is full of feedback. If we are alert and pay attention to our surroundings, we can change course as necessary to be successful. The great Japanese author and tidiness expert Marie Kondo teaches that as one organizes their surroundings and decides to remove items from their life, gratitude should be expressed not just for those objects, but to those objects. Personally, I have never even considered thanking my old socks before I sent them on their way to the landfill. So this peering into the belief structures of Motainai and Shintoism can be very interesting. Literally thanking items for their service to you may not be your individual cup of tea, but graciousness and appreciation for our blessings in this life is cross-cultural and will never go out of style. When discussing gratitude for our life and circumstances, I personally reflect on two American films. The first is titled 
It's a Wonderful Life. This is a beautiful film based on a story by Philip Van Doren Stern, written in 1939, titled The Greatest Gift. Frank Capra directed, and James Jimmy Stewart was the star of this beloved piece of art. If you have not seen the film, I would say stop everything in your life and go watch it right now. Or at least do it the next time you have 130 continuous minutes to invest in a motion picture. You owe yourself the pleasure of viewing this movie, and I will do my best not to spoil the plot too much while referencing it here. The protagonist, George Bailey, is considering killing himself. Through the course of the film, George is reminded of highlights from his life, saving others, making good decisions, finding his bride, etc. While on hard times and being told that he is worth more dead than alive, George has the thought, I wish I had never been born. The character is then given a gift, the privilege of seeing the world the way it would be if he had never existed. I wish everyone contemplating suicide could have the same experience George is given in this film. He is shown how the world would have been a little darker and sadder because he wasn't there. To anyone that is considering their own demise, I hope you would watch this film first. I hope you would consider those who have had a better existence because you were there. Even if the world is legitimately worse off because of your life and decisions, there is still time to bring some light and life to this world and make a positive impact. Please, stay with us and do some good in the world today. The second film I want to mention is titled Click. This movie was written by Steve Corrin and Mark O'Keefe, directed by Frank Caracci, and Adam Sandler played the lead character. Michael Newman, played by Sandler, is an architect that wants desperately to advance in his career and to make more money, but he feels trapped in his circumstances. In the first act of the film, he is provided with a remote control, which allows him to program his life. He can adjust the color, sound, and speed of his life, giving him the power to fast-forward through activities he feels are dull or mundane. This awesome power provided by the remote comes with a bit of a catch. The remote learns Michael's preferences and automates them. For example, Michael just wanted to skip the days where he was sick and finds himself missing years of his life because he was sick for extended periods of time. As the character Michael learns not to fast forward through life while on autopilot, the audience gets to learn to be more present and live life every day. In a way, your life is an amalgamation of boring, mundane activities interrupted by flashes of excitement or tragedy. In other words, life is not about waiting for the storm to pass. It's about learning to dance in the rain. Psychologically, studies show that people can cultivate gratitude by literally counting their blessings and writing letters of thanks. This proactive acknowledgement can increase well-being, health, and happiness. Being grateful, and especially the expression of it, is also associated with increased energy, optimism, and empathy. One of the great stories about Jesus Christ is when he healed ten people of leprosy, but only one turned back in thankfulness. I hope more than 10% of people offer gratitude for their gifts and blessings people give them. Either way, there aren't many more cutting sentences in literature than the phrase, were there not 10 cleansed? But where are the nine? In our modern world, one of the challenges we face is living in the moment. 
What a great skill set it is to be able to sit down on a cell phone or computer and focus until our task is finished, then put those tools away and live here in this room with these people, regardless of how mundane or dull the circumstance seems. Your job may be to bring some life to that room or some happiness to your companions. Show gratitude for this beautiful, difficult, mundane, and sometimes horrifying gift you have been given. And live while you are alive. Absorb the Arrow, Chapter 10. Nature's Way. This may be one of the biggest dichotomies in the human experience. If you want to be sad, make sure you sit on your couch and think about yourself and your own happiness every day. And if you want to be happy, focus on the happiness of someone else every day. One of these two ways is better than the other. And as the great philosopher Aristotle put it, if one way be better than another, that you may be sure is nature's way. Estimates suggest that there are up to 50,000 individual thoughts that can float through a person's mind on a daily basis. Imagine if half your thoughts were pointed at you. Further, imagine that half of those thoughts were of you listing your negative traits to yourself over and over again. You could easily be engaging the most brilliant computing capacity of your creative mind in the destruction of your own mental and emotional state. By contrast, consider the benefits of pointing some of your 50,000 thoughts in the direction of your fellows. Then let us say, you stood up from your couch and went about the world in an effort to solve a problem for someone else every day. Not for price or prestige, but just for the sake of serving others. The benefit to others would be well appreciated, but the benefits to yourself may not be as clear. Allow me to list a few benefits of serving others. You will feel better. It motivates others to service takes focus away from yourself, and improves self-esteem and overall well-being, builds stronger relationships, improves physical health and extends your lifespan, reduces chronic pain, lowers blood pressure, helps mitigate the potential for troubled teens, and gives the servant a greater sense of purpose and satisfaction with life. Nature, and the evidence drawn from nature, is pointing us in the path that we should go if we are to be happy. That is, to spend at least a few moments every day benefiting those around us. If for no other reason than to get the improved health and well-being provided by following nature's way. Absorb the Arrow, Chapter 11. Balance. In many places, you may be able to find people discuss the four F's, or the five F's, of leading a balanced life. I'm going to add an F and call it the six F's, not to be confused with George Carlin's comedy bit, Words You're Not Allowed to Say. The six F's are faith, family, friendship, fitness, finances, and flowering. Faith. My religion is an integral part of my life. As a child, I grew up being taught to love, forgive, reconcile, and achieve peace through a relationship with the divine. I understand that religions differ in doctrine and practice, and that many people don't see the evidence to follow religion or believe in a deity at all. 
Even so, spirituality and peace is something that is achievable for anyone. Naval Ravikant may have said it best. To me, peace is happiness at rest, and happiness is peace in motion. Spirituality is an important part of the human experience, and I hope everyone can take this invitation to connect with the divine through prayer, or if they don't believe, to connect to their inner self through meditation and reflection. Family. By far, the most important relationships in life come from our immediate families. For some, their parents provided a loving and peaceful environment where talents are developed, encouragement was voiced, and support seemed endless. For others, the catastrophically stupid decisions of their parents will forever weigh down their progression. Either way, the parent-child relationship is a vital part of a person's upbringing. The most unfair advantages or disadvantages in life stem from decisions that had nothing to do with us, but everything to do with the decisions made by the previous generation. Children are entitled to two parents and a peaceful setting in which to grow up. An unfortunate development in human culture is that over the last few decades, the number of children being born to and raised by one parent has skyrocketed. The cultural and financial cost of incentivizing this behavior is the source of many problems and should be shamed and shunned whenever possible. For example, children raised by a single parent are 20 times more likely to be sexually abused than a child raised by both parents. If that isn't enough of a reason to wait to have children until you are financially and emotionally stable and in a two-parent circumstance, then consider these statistics as well. Children from fatherless homes are 75% of all adolescent patients in chemical abuse centers, 71% of high school dropouts, 80% of rapists, 85% of children with behavioral disorders, 90% of homeless and runaway children, and 65% of youth suicides. Those statistics represent a heavy financial price in a heartbreaking societal cancer that will eventually destroy our civilizations if we cannot sell young people on waiting to have children until they can provide a peaceful setting for those babies. It was once said that no other success can compensate for failure in the home. The poorest shack in which love prevails over a united family is of greater value than any other riches. Friendship. Rare is true love. True friendship is rarer. One of the harshest punishments a parent can levy is the prohibition of friend interaction for the day. Children crave experiencing movies, games, and events with a companion. As adults, this joy of friendship is lost to many. And there is a bit of a social shell that grows around us. We network with acquaintances rather than bond with friends. Friendship can easily die when ulterior motives are revealed or the joy of being around others is unrequited. Jean de la Fontaine is correct. True friendship is rare, but when it is found... It is one of the tender mercies of life to interact with a man or woman you call friend. Fitness. Consider driving in the Daytona 500, regarded as the most prestigious race 
on the NASCAR calendar. How well do you think you and your team would perform in that race if you were driving a 1994 Chevrolet Suburban and towing a weighted-down trailer with a flat tire? Compared to the souped-up engines and the light frames of your competitors, I wouldn't exactly bet on you to finish in the top 10. The analogy isn't too complex, I hope. If you are to achieve things in this life, you must maintain a reasonable level of health and vitality. If you are too tired or sick to jump on an opportunity, then you run the risk of people quoting John Greenleaf Whittier at your funeral. Of all sad words of tongue and pen, the saddest are these. It might have been. Finances. One of the great lessons of life regarding money was taught by Zig Ziglar. Quote, you will get all you want in life if you help enough other people get what they want. End quote. To restate, if you produce enough value through selling a product or a service, you will be able to trade for anything you want. Find out what people are willing to pay for and provide that thing. Now that you have an income, learn that regardless of the size of that income, you can choose to restrain your consumption to a smaller number. Further, everyone can refrain from having children until you are financially capable to sustain a child with your partner. Obviously, this ties closely to the family section above. All Western countries have seen a degeneration of family structure, and even though those countries are wealthy by historical and world standards, the clock is ticking on a financial reversal. The sad fact is, all the potential dangers that could be brought about by governments going further into debt to sustain giant welfare programs could be avoided by better individual choices. There are several sources where you can find similar principles, but I'll use Paul Moyer's article titled Seven Ways Not to Be Poor. One, stay in school. Two, get married and wait till you are married to have kids. Three, stay married. Four, work any kind of job and work hard. Five, spend time around and learn from successful people. Six, don't be a crook. Seven, plan for the long term. I understand that there are IQ and disability concerns for some people, but financial health is achievable for anyone willing to be able to follow the steps. Flowering. Personal development and improvement is imperative to living an examined life. Our bodies crave daily nourishment in the form of calories, and our minds crave daily wisdom and understanding. On a daily basis, I hope you will commit to gather a little more wisdom and understanding of the world around you to feed your mind and nourish your soul. A life that is balanced and at peace best comes through the constant flowering of your personality through daily reflections into the pursuit of wisdom. Absorb the Arrow, Chapter 12. Win Anyway. The ump was cheating for the other team. The strike zone was small when I was pitching, and he was calling outside pitches and high pitches as strikes when our team was up to bat. My son blathered after a particularly embarrassing Little League defeat. I replied, why didn't you win anyway? Well, 
How can we possibly win if the umpires aren't following the rules? Was his response. The question posed by my son is a good one. If the rules seem to be unevenly applied to you than they do to others, then how can you possibly win? I'll tell you the story I told him in response to the question. In the summer of 2010, the playing contract expired for a fairly well-known professional basketball player by the name of LeBron James. Coincidentally, in that same summer, the contract for one Chris Bosch also expired. At that time in the NBA, there was no such thing as a franchise tag or a team matching option to keep superstar players so highly productive players were able to take advantage of unrestricted contractual status and go play wherever they wanted. So, in a grand display of immediate gratification, LeBron and Chris both decided to play for the Miami Heat, a team that had won an NBA championship four years earlier and still featured another superstar named Dwayne Wade. The hype and the spectacle was incredible. The day of LeBron and Chris's signing was dubbed The Decision, and this trio of superstars was promptly labeled The Big Three by sports reporters and fans. A welcoming party was even held at American Airlines Arena, the home stadium for the Heat, and LeBron himself suggested that the talent that had been put together would produce multiple championships for the Miami Heat. Not four, not five, not six. Dot, dot, dot. Were these men immensely talented? Absolutely. Did they bring a few championships to Miami? Yes. However, in the first year of this trio's experience, they fell short and did not win the championship. The team that beat them was the Dallas Mavericks, a team that featured only one all-star that year, Dirk Nowitzki. One would think three all-stars to one all-star should not have produced a 4-2 Miami defeat in the best of seven series. The Mavericks may have felt intimidated at the thought of going up against the media darlings of the NBA and the officials all at the same time. What did the Mavericks do? They won anyway. In the NBA game, the referees have enough power to cause people like LeBron James to fall down intentionally to get a whistle. That is a lot of raw power, and there may or may not be a slant toward teams from bigger media markets in that league, but the refs can't overcome shooting percentages. Yes, the officials can call ticky-tack fouls to pamper the superstars. They can whistle a moving screen at random to turn over possession, and the most powerful tool they have is to refrain from blowing their whistle when the media favorite is playing defense. However, the rules dictate that even the underdogs get to take the ball out of bounds after a made basket. And if they make the shots, there isn't a lot more the officials can do. So the Mavericks won anyway. To draw the philosophy from this story, let me be clear. The most fair thing about life is that we are all born and we will all die. Everything else is unfair, imbalanced, crooked, and uneven. You may not be as good-looking, intelligent, or tall as the next guy. Win anyway. You may be looked over for promotions because of your gender, race, religion, or opening chess strategy. 
win anyway. You may not get something you want because of some element beyond your control. Win anyway. You might be the uglier girl. You might be the poorer guy. You might be less athletic, less lucky, or have red hair. Win anyway. Life can be an astounding and rewarding experience, but it can also be the worst form of hell. No matter where you are or what has happened, the only option is to go solve your problems by pressing on with persistence and determination. Remember the immortal words of Dr. Seuss. Be who you are and say what you feel, because those who mind don't matter, and those who matter don't mind. May you live your life as the calmest person in the room, the coolest cucumber in the garden, and the most composed griever at the funeral. Just keep in mind that we humans only get two lives, according to Confucius. The second begins when we realize we only have one. Go. Win. The best part of the bus ride home from the local middle school was the hump in the road, which existed to accommodate the irrigation ditch that ran through town and under the thoroughfare. The hump was drastic enough that the children in the back five seats would be flung into the air as the back tires rolled over the protrusion, so we jumped at the pinnacle to amplify the effect. This is a fun memory, which serves to remind me of some of the simple joys of growing up. One day, just after our exciting ride over the irrigation hump, and just as the bus rolled to the next stop, I saw two dogs playing next to one of the nearby homes. A thought came to me from the inner workings of my developing brain. This thought should have been allowed to make an entrance onto the stage of my mind, then immediately ushered to the exit to give way for more wholesome and kind-hearted ideas. Unfortunately, 14-year-old boys are not known for their impulse control, and to that assertion, I was no exception. Across the aisle from me sat Michael. He was very quiet and usually kept to himself. I was never particularly kind to Michael, but I don't recall hazing him at a high level the way other children did. Michael was, for lack of a better phrase, one of the stinky kids. Doubtless, he lived with more cats than humans, and there was no evidence that the washing machine or dryer at his house was operational. As the bus creaked to a stop, I pointed at the two dogs playing in the adjacent yard and loudly proclaimed, Look, Mike, your parents are here to pick you up two stops early. The laughter was penetrating. Michael retreated to his corner, and I was heralded for my cleverness. To this day, there is nothing quite like delivering a joke that I wrote and having an audience respond positively to it. The flood of emotions in my brain may be the reason I recall this story so well from a quarter century ago. I remember that positive emotion of generating laughter from the kids who hazed Michael, and I relished in it. I also remember the presence of another emotion, a much more heavy and profound emotion. The feeling you get when you do something that intentionally hurts a fellow being for the purposes of amusement. On that day, I was a bully. I was raised in a solid two-parent home full of peace, love, and prosperity. Compared to most, I was very blessed. 
My parents also raised me with religious principles like respect for the golden rule and love God and love your neighbor. I wish I could tell a kinder, gentler Hollywood ending to this interaction, but I can't. Michael moved shortly after this exchange, and I am left to wonder how his life has turned out. I really wish I had been able to teach my younger self to be more careful with his words. I wish my younger self had absorbed the teachings of Wayne Dyer. Quote, when given the choice between being right or being kind, choose kind. I failed, and I am sorry for that failure and the feeling of guilt that surrounds this memory. Still, at a deeper level, I wish someone could have taught Michael some coping skills so he wouldn't have allowed himself to be hurt by the things we said to him. I wish wholeheartedly that after I suggested the two dogs playing were his parents, that he would have smiled and responded, Thanks for your concern. Sorry they used your front yard as a latrine. Wishing, hoping, and dreaming that children and adults can learn to not be offensive to each other is a wonderful goal. But it may be as likely as persuading the sun to change course and start setting in the east, just to make things fair. This book is for all the Michaels. This book is for those that sit by themselves, for those that are teased, and for those that are harassed. This book is for everyone who is marginalized. Even more importantly, it is for those who think they are marginalized or feel broken. I hope this work can give you the coping skills necessary to endure those emotional and circumstantial slings and arrows that are an inevitable part of human existence. Hindsight always seems to provide excellent perspective. Only months after Michael moved away, my little brother started to be hazed and ridiculed at a shocking level, which persisted throughout his experience in government schools. Only months after Michael moved away was I treated like an other, someone who was different, someone worth mockery and ridicule. Through these experiences, I became stronger. I've grown in knowledge and confidence and hope to convey some of those tools to subsequent generations. I will conclude with another personal anecdote, which is provided by a friend of mine with her permission, of course. The following statement was posted on my friend Katie's Instagram account. Katie, you are so GD ugly. No wonder why no one likes your disgusting ugly A. You should be ashamed of yourself. I ought to come and kick your butt ugly A face. You should definitely put a bag over your face to cover your ugliness. Oh, congratulations, Miss Fairview, a town of 20 people. Parenthesis, clapping sign, close parenthesis. You be them all to get there. There is a reason why nobody likes your ugly A. Maybe if you weren't such a B and a piece of S. Can't wait to come there and kick your A. Ugly A B. I was as shocked as you to see that this person failed to use any hashtags at the end of the rant. So weird. Also, please forgive me for redacting the naughty words. When I was young, I was programmed to only use words like that if you were trying to tell a farm animal or a golf ball where to go. 
If you aren't sure which words are cloaked, just take your copy of this book to the closest middle school, and any number of those lovely children will be happy to decipher the text for you. The children can help with the audio version as well, I'm sure. As mentioned, Katie was a crowned beauty queen in her hometown and her county. She also represented those communities in the Miss Utah competition and is, by most accounts, a very sweet and attractive young woman. Katie's response to this defamation is so beautiful, I have to share it as well, also with her permission. Quote, My platform as Miss Sanpete County last year was, Now is the time to be kind. I talked to my community, mostly our schools, about how little we realize the effect that we have on others. Every action, word, or even a message on social media can change someone's day in an instant. So be kind, look outside yourself, make an effort in trying to make someone else smile instead of being consumed with your own contentment. No act of kindness, no matter how small, is ever wasted. To whomever took the time to make a fake Instagram account to send me this well-thought-out message, I feel empathy for you. Bringing people down won't help you raise to the top. Be kind. Close quote by Katie Nielsen. I firmly believe that every anti-bullying measure taken by churches, communities, and schools has value. And I wish that Katie's platform could have worldwide appeal so everyone could decide that now is the time to be kind. The problem is that these efforts will fail. There will always be hurting children and adults that get a dopamine rush from hurting others. Also, in a cultural melting pot, unintended behaviors and words have the potential to offend us. Consider this. What if my friend Katie was not a talented and beautiful person? I've done some simple back-of-the-envelope calculations and have deduced that about half of all people are below average. If the hurtful words in the above passage were pointed at Katie and they were all true, I would hope she could still cope with them in such a way that she remained in control of her emotions so she could maintain her good humor. If we are to avoid the repetition of some of the more gruesome chapters in the history books, I believe we as individuals must get better at coping with negative stimuli so we can maintain our handle on reality. Abraham Lincoln may have said it best, be too big to take offense and too noble to give it. Live well and make it a great day. <laughs>